Hi, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. You know, once the school year started this year and then all throughout this year, one of the big topics of conversation that, that I've encountered over and over again, not just on this podcast, but even in my, in my day job, uh, is, is how we are responding to what happened during the pandemic. And inevitably, those conversations tend to roll around to the fact that relationships are more vital than ever. And, and certainly that whether you're in a higher education setting or a K-12 setting, uh, that the issue of socio-emotional learning is something that we all need to be paying attention to because of the impact that it could have on the well-being, not just of our students, but also on, on faculty uh, and in some cases, even, even the parents and families of the students that we're working with. We're going to be talking about that issue today. My guest is Judon DeShields. He's the Chief Program and Strategy Officer at Power My Learning, which is a nonprofit organization devoted to advancing equitable education through collaborative relationships between teachers, students, and families. Judon holds a PhD in urban education from Temple University, and he's also held positions at schools in Philadelphia and Washington, in addition to holding various positions in other education-related nonprofits. Judon, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I want to start um, in a more general sense uh, uh, talking about uh, what socio-emotional learning is from your perspective. I think that many of our listeners will have a very good idea of what that means. But if you could unpack that concept a little bit before we get into the case study, I would appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. So I see social-emotional learning as the process and sort of the conditions by which a young person comes into their personhood and identity. And this can happen both in school, outside of school. Um, but it's you know acknowledging that in schools, we do a good job of dumping information and sort of academic learning into our young people's heads mm-hmm. and acknowledging that beyond the walls of our school community, be it as they're growing up, be it as they're going to college or entering the workforce, there's so much more that's needed. So it's the process by which you learn how to build and sustain relationships, how to deal with conflict, how to make decisions, how to set goals, how to determine who you want to be in this world and how to how you want to make sense of it. And you know, when we when we link a phrase to a concept like this with socio-emotional learning, sometimes people think, well, that's a that's a new concept, but actually this has been around for hundreds of years, right? Absolutely. And, you know, nothing in education is new. It's all cyclical. (laughs) And what we often find is it just depends on what matters most to a given audience, whether it's funders, whether it's uh, the accountable measures we put in place for schools, or something like coming back into schools after a pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. which had clear and measured impact on our schools, on our students, on our teachers and their communities. So, you know, sort of focusing in on that point, um, it it appears, I mean, I, I think you could argue that socio-emotional learning has always been important, but certainly coming out of the pandemic where I think many of us have really developed a heightened attention to the well-being of everyone in our schools, what was it about the pandemic um, that, that, that sort of brought this into focus for all of us? I think we really found over the course of the pandemic, especially for districts and school communities that had to be in a virtual and distance learning posture for longer than others, the importance of relationships. And that's relationships between students, that's relationship between student and teacher, relationships between teacher and family or community. 
that sort of proximity um, makes room for relationships in a way that virtual learning couldn't readily do. So things like being able to read someone's um, you know, emotional language to determine what they might be going through, to, mm-hmm. to read someone's sort of comfort with the material of what's being taught, to be able to understand who might be feeling isolated or not being able to um, connect with peers, that was a lot more challenging when we were all in virtual learning. Um, so over that time, you had young people who were experiencing isolation, who were experiencing heightened levels of trauma at home, who also didn't have outlets via day-to-day and prox- uh, proximal relationships with caring adults or caring young people in their social networks that could attend to that in real time. Mm-hmm. There's some evidence that and you mentioned this, that perhaps because of health orders or other reasons that some districts were impacted by the pandemic for longer periods of time than others. Uh, and I believe that that you all have highlighted the fact that some of the um, less fluent districts maybe were impacted longer. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Absolutely. So during the pandemic, the heart of the pandemic, I was uh, based in Washington, D.C. And Our young people had that sort of spring of of March 2020 onward um, in our initial virtual learning posture. Everyone was figuring things out, trying to get technology up and running. And then on through the next year um, in in a distance learning posture. And I'll say as a district, we, we learned really quickly that we had a subset of young people, most of whom were living at or below the poverty line, Mm-hmm. who, because we were in this virtual learning posture, also did not have um, access to the basic resources that school was readily providing. So whether that was meals, whether that was access to counseling and men- mental health, um, all of these services that the school community was providing, by no longer being in person, they were, they were missing out on. So mm-hmm. DC Public Schools operationalized uh, a CARES classroom setup in which young people could come back in person uh, and really starting to practice sort of distance learning in person in a safe way for the first time, but providing those, um, those basic needs on site so that they could still access um, instruction in a safe way. So some, some, may believe that now that, um, you know, hopefully knock on wood, the worst of the pandemic is behind us, that that situation has sort of resolved itself. Do you think that there are still ongoing effects of the pandemic that we're still seeing in our classrooms right now? There absolutely are. So at a, at a basic level, young people um, who are living in poverty, especially and this disproportionately impacts young people of color, Um, Studies have already shown that they experience heightened levels of trauma um, by way of loss of loved ones in particular over the course of the pandemic. And again, when we think about sort of a caring, connected community that a school can offer, even the ability to process that loss of a loved one, um, we think back to the pandemic, how many people experienced the loss of loved ones without being able to go to a funeral or Mm -hmm. without being able to say a proper goodbye being able to process those things with a teacher or a counselor or even a friend, that was sort of um, lost or delayed uh, during the pandemic. So that's one impact that's felt. 
um, I think about and point to the increased use of screens and sort of young people's exposure to social media, mm -hmm. which has become really, really unfiltered these days. So, you know, more exposure to, to violence or more exposure to just things that a classroom community or environment might be able to more readily control for, um, you know, there was a lot less supervision. And I'm not saying supervision is always the best thing for young people as they learn and grow, but that certainly was an impact of the pandemic. And then just not being able to practice relationship management and especially mm -hmm. conflict management in real time. So you had young people come back and who were really struggling to um, manage their con conduct in ways that you would say, well, you're in sixth grade, you're, you're expressing this conduct in a way that is reflective of a third or a fourth grader. And then we take ourselves back to the last grade that they were in yeah. in person and say, oh, well, they missed this large block of time in which they would have learned those skills in school. Yeah, I mean, the the only thing I, I would add to that, and I think you captured it, is that in my field of communication where we uh, are, are deeply concerned about, uh, you know, critical media literacy, um, also one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that the natural um, ability for individuals to have sense-making uh, dialogue with others about what they're experiencing on social media, but but also outside of social media, got lost because uh, they were they were literally isolated from uh, many of those resources. So let's turn in and talk about the the story that that is really important um, that Power My Learning worked with. Uh, you all released a report uh, just a few months ago about a program that you had with the Gene Meadows Elementary School in San Jose. Can you set the stage for? Um, letting us learn just a little bit about that school and, and the situation that they found themselves in that led to the relationship um, with Power My Learning. Absolutely. So Gene Meadows is located in San Jose, California. Just to set the student demographic um, stage for you, 78% of their students qualify for free or redu reduced price lunch. Um, so a lot of students living um, in poverty. 67% um, of students are Hispanic. 29% um, identify as Asian American or Pacific Islander, um, and about 1% uh, black and 1% white. But to really set the context requires us to look into um, the mind and the heart of their principal, Magdalena Moore. <laughs> and, you know, Magdalena sought us out and she said, you know, I'm coming back into um, school after the pandemic or after, you know, the most devastating parts of the pandemic. And I I hear the call for accelerated learning. I know we have learning gaps that are really pronounced, but before we do that work, we really need to attend to the needs of not only the students, but also the staff and what they've experienced over the last six to 12 months. So it really started with her bold and courageous vision. You know, districts are really good at saying, principal, this is your priority for the year and you mm -hmm cannot deviate from this priority. And that was the, the tone and the tenor across our nation, that accelerated learning, learning loss was expressly what we needed to focus on. And Principal Moore said, yes, and if I don't set a strong foundation of healing, of trauma-informed mm -hmm. care, mm -hmm. of social-emotional learning, then I can't hope for accelerated learning to truly take hold with my teachers and or with my students. 
So I, I, we're definitely going to unpack, you know, what the strategies were that were employed. But but the headline was that there were tremendous and significant results that were observed. Let's start by you describing those, and we'll, then we'll talk about how you got there. So I think the big thing for us, and it starts with a quote from uh, Principal Moore, is that school communities are built on trust. And she said, I have to be able to trust my teachers and they reciprocally have to be able to trust me and each other. And I think this was so powerful because essentially she was rolling out two distinct strategies that she wanted to be integrated. She said, I want social emotional learning to live side by side of accelerated learning. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about trust, you know, teachers have things that are rolled out time and time again, every single year, a new initiative. We talk about initiative fatigue all the time. And ultimately, the biggest thing that came out of this was we built teacher capacity to do social emotional learning integrated with an approach to accelerated learning because trust was formed between the principal mm -hmm. and the teaching community. Mm -hmm. as, a, as a byproduct of that, teachers grew in their confidence to really program for social emotional learning, which we know with any new initiative, and especially one as important, and what we want to be in, as enduring as social emotional learning, teachers have to trust that we are growing their capacity at the right pace, in the right grain size, and that it's authentic. Not that we're just dumping competencies into their head or giving them a script, but that we're giving them um, sort of power and collaborative spirit in the process as well. Mm -hmm. And then um, another byproduct was that we strengthened relationships with families as a result. So our work over time has been about building a triangle of relationships between teacher and leader, between student, and ultimately with family and community, and wanting everyone to grow in confidence and capacity to do things like accelerating learning or social-emotional learning. And we found over time that those teacher-student-family relationships were strengthened. And, and the outcomes that you observed was actually that there were very much positive increases in reading, math, and self-efficacy, right? Absolutely. So by the end of the school year, students had demonstrated significantly better self-efficacy and self-management. So when we talk mm -hmm. about you know, the core components of a strong social-emotional learning foundation, it's yes, those academic gains, but also the sort of core components that are going to set you up for success beyond um, the classroom. So when we think about self-management, that is a, a core um, skill that oftentimes young people lack when they get to college. And then when we think about why they don't persist, well, the ability to set a schedule or set direction or set focus, we found that in this, this case study really clearly. Mm -hmm. I, when I was learning about uh, Principal Moore, uh, there was a statement that struck me in the report where she essentially said, I'm putting this in my own words, that she wants SEL to be integrated and not another thing. Can you kind of talk about what she meant in that dichotomy and, and what integrated means in the way that it was enacted? Sure. I'll, I'll go back to my point about initiative fatigue. And I think this is something that teachers, especially on a national level, when we talk about burnout and, and attrition, that they feel year to year in which a district can set a strong priority and sort of dictate what teachers will do. But as a byproduct, they'll throw at them a new tech tool or mm -hmm. a new reading curriculum without getting into the why, the deep why of why this is so critical for our students right now. And Principal Moore realized that. She said, you know, 
all of this conversation around learning loss acceleration, it's very buzzy, it's very new. And, and if I don't handle this with care, my teachers are going to look at me like this is just another thing that I'm layering onto a plate. And I always you know, make the analogy that teachers have a, a plate the size of a Thanksgiving meal. Like it's ever <laughs> and overflowing. So if we're not aware of that, we're not saying like your, your role breath and what we're asking you to do is also ever expanding, then their roles quickly become untenable. So if we're saying you need to be a counselor and a therapist and an instructor and someone who connects with families, but we don't look at how that's done in the day-to-day and in a given week, then they're never going to get to all the things that we're asking of them. So just incredible credit to Principal Moore who said, in order to do this work right, I have to look at social emotional learning as something that is embedded within a lesson something that's embedded within a teacher's organic planning process, or else I'm not going to be able to authentically say, if I'm asking 100% of you, then then I'm leveling this up to 140% and you're going to be burnt out before we even get to October. Yeah, yeah that's very, it's so important for uh, leaders to understand that and, and then to figure out ways to implement it. So can, were there any stories that, that you became aware of as uh, as um, uh, Meadows Elementary was enacting this that illustrated how SEL became integrated in that way into, you know, a specific course or a lesson or a way that a teacher, you know, carried out their day? Absolutely. So I think one of the things that is part of our core strategy that we always want to see come to light is sort of flipping teacher professional development on its head in a way that acknowledges you you are the masters of your craft. Like teaching is is very truly an art form. And so we don't just want to equip you with skills like we would in any other industry and say, and do this this exact way. Like we want to give you the spirit and the ethos behind it. We want to equip you with a strong rationale and a toolkit of resources And then we want to create collaborative structures by which you all can come together as teachers, as sort of masters of your craft and design solutions that are context and community specific. So we did just that with with Meadows. And what we found as a result was, you know, teachers, especially in grade levels, came together and they began just like prototyping and testing things out in ways that allowed for them to design again, context and community-specific solutions to the problems they were facing. One that I like to celebrate was, I think it was the sixth grade team created this thing that they call Genius Hour. And Genius Hour is actually actually something that Google created, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. But this, it's this idea that you can't just like drive towards work and learning and go, go, go in your office or school culture without creating time for like a passion-driven environment. So... One teacher said, well, I want to give my students time within a certain block to really just like research something that they're interested in, curious about, and then sort of bring it back to the rest of the school, the, uh, the class community as a way of, you know, sharing and as a way of getting excited about something that they're learning. And, you know, in a regular school, you might find teachers sort of dismissing ideas readily because there's, there's almost a competitive culture or a culture in which... I close my door, I do my thing, and you know what you do down the hall is fine. But what we found at Meadows was it, it became like this, this sort of um, idea-sharing culture in which 
one teacher said, well, that sounds great. I want to build on that. And I'm going to come back and show you like what we did in our classroom. And before long, a whole grade level was implementing Genius Hour in their own way at Meadows. Um, or you had a teacher named Rick who really wanted to work on building accountability in his students. Um, and before long, he was uh, accessing our toolkit and looking at ways that he could put into place like these student-driven conferences. Um, and what he was really sort of shocked by was when he started to talk about accountability with students, it became about goal setting. And so mm -hmm. they really helped to understand, well, if I want to be able to grow in this way, these are the small actionable steps that I need to take to get there. Um, and he said afterwards, after implementing these student-driven conferences, he had a handful of students say, thank you. And it, it like floored him. He didn't realize that, you know, in terms of building relationships with young people, they could also be geared towards like that relationship in the academic sense. Like you helped me to actualize a goal that I set and put me on a different path um, towards realizing success. So I think we helped Meadows teachers um, see that, you know, you can go from tools and ideas to collaborative action with each other. And that collaborative action can spark like you taking ownership and taking power within your classroom community to design the solutions that your students need. And consequently, the relationship strengthens as a result. It's really interesting that that example, uh, you can certainly hear in the way that you told that how that would connect back to the results you observed on student self-efficacy. But I also hear you saying that it also empowered the teachers to have self-efficacy and also a very vibrant, innovative and team-based culture. Absolutely. And if I take myself back to my days as a principal, I think, again, giving kudos to Principal Moore here, there's a tendency to sort of be very directive in your leadership to say, mm. in order for me to actualize this vision, I need to be able to narrate every single teacher move that I want to see. And as a result, we put our teachers in boxes and, mm -hmm. you know, we, we deprofessionalize the art within their craft. And by Principal Moore stepping back and cultivating uh, a culture of trust, what she did was she empowered her teachers to come to the solutions that they that were already within their sort of realm of control. And as a result, I think what she built over the long term was teacher leaders and, mm -hmm. and empowering a culture of teacher leaders that will inevitably trickle down to the students who will then start to create the culture that they want to see within their classroom and their school as well. Yeah, that's and, and that's such that's such an important counter narrative to the quote unquote disempowered teacher that we see over and over again. I mean, this is a shining example of how to counteract that and actually reverse it. I know that um, Power My Learning is also interested in, in integrating other stakeholders, most prominently the families. Can you talk a little bit about the family workshops that were undertaken at Meadows? Absolutely. So, on the surface, we we start with the acknowledgement that too often families encounter schools, districts, and school communities in a way that says, we school are the, the holder of all knowledge, information, sort of expertise related to education. And because of that, when we invite you in to our school for back to school night, parent-teacher conferences, we expect you to sit down, to listen, and then we really only want your input when there's a problem with your young person. When we need a sort of commitment or, or maybe even insight for how to solve this problem. And that's such a broken design. You know, like one of the things that I often point to is 
during the pandemic and when we leaned on our parents to supplement and or provide direct instruction to their young person, we gained so much as a result. Like if we did not have parents as partners in that process, even amidst massive learning gaps, we, we, our children would have suffered greatly if we did not have parents at home supporting them in real time. It's also acknowledging that before students even came to us in pre-K, so much happened at home to prepare them for that point. So why all of a sudden would that inclusion of parents as partners and as experts in this process stop? They might not be formally trained uh, educators, but they have a wealth of knowledge, both culturally and about their young person, that, that we need to constantly employ and evolve, involve in the process. So what we aim to do is really bridge the gap, uh, starting with mindsets. So our, our workshops are both for um, our educators and our leaders, but more importantly for our families, in which we help them to bridge the gap and bridge this divide that's been created unintentionally by schools over time. Um, we do that first by saying, you know, and equipping our families with a mindset to say, you should be an active contributor in this process. And now here are the ways that you navigate schools and schools, school communities to do so. Um, so we give them tips and tricks and toolkits to begin conversations with their teachers, to advocate, um, and ultimately to be able to sort of bridge that school and home divide in a way that increases collaboration. So on a nuts and bolts uh, sort of level, in addition to working with the families and the teachers, there there is also just an element of, of classroom management where you have to learn to deal with misbehavior and, and counteract that. Um, one of the concepts, it appears to me, that, that was used with students in that process was restorative justice. And how, how did that play? What does that mean? And how did it play a role in, as a tool for teachers to be able to use in their, in their classroom management strategies? And I'm, I'm glad you started with that, that question of what does that mean, Scott? Because I've, I've found in districts, in schools, Oftentimes, we don't start at that point. Mm -hmm. and, and again, we start from a point of like, we're going to roll out restorative justice or restorative practice, and here's how you do it. Here's sort of the handbook. Um, but it really has to start with the philosophy and the ethos that when something happens between two people, there's an opportunity to do one of two things. You could either, either be punitive and take the stance that our, um, our justice system takes that you know, we give you a slap on the wrist and escalate that on up to incarceration over time, or we can restore the harm that's been done. Um, and restoration comes with accountable measures and consequences, but more importantly, it looks at what do I need to acknowledge both within myself and the individual that I've harmed in order to repair this relationship and move forward productively. The thing that I love about restorative practices this is like the best form in my mind of conflict resolution. And I think something that, you know, I've been in quite a few workplaces, something that even as adults, we're woefully lacking in if we look at it as a skill. So it, it says we can start this, you know, from pre-K onward, and we can build this competency in our students and in our, our teachers as well. So in terms of the work that we did with Meadows, it started by building mindsets and saying, you know, we've done approaches to conflict conduct uh, and conflict over time in a way that's 
you know, adult doing things to the young person to say, you did this. And because of that, we're giving you X consequence, a detention, a suspension, a reflection, what have you. Um, and restorative justice sort of flipping that on its head to say, well, first, we're going to start by asking you, like, what happened? What were you thinking at the time that that happened? And, and what have you thought about since? And thereafter, what can we do to make things different or make it better? Um, so over time, it's, it's taking it from that philosophy and that ethos into building practice both within teacher and within student. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give you some quick examples, you know, I always encourage people to think about restorative practices as a continuum. There's a great handbook out there from the Institute of Restorative Practice. It's, it's 12 pages as a PDF, and it walks you through this continuum that starts with affective statements. Like, how do we speak to each other, mm-hmm. not only when harm has been done, but how do we build up each other's personhood? When, when I see you in the morning, how do I greet you? How do I make you feel? Um, and then that continuum inches along to how do we build community together? So, you know, we train schools and, and practitioners and students on community building circles. How do we check in with each other? How do we talk about our emotions? How do we talk after there's been conflict? Um, and that continuum leads on up to sort of a victim offender communication or conference to say something has happened. How do we check in with the person who's been harmed, with the person who's done the harm? And then how do we facilitate time and space to bring them together to ascertain Mm -hmm. what needs to happen next and how do we repair the harm? So I think the, you know, as I, as I think about Meadows um, and, and, you know, the, the benefit that has happened at that school as a result of their work with you, how do you, what advice would you give them? looking forward over the next several years to maintain uh, this momentum that they've achieved uh, and not let sort of the complacency of, of, you know, everyday life to allow them to regress. And I'm not saying that I think that they would, but I think that's always a, an issue that you have to confront as a leader. How do you keep the gains and, and not revert back to the average or the norm? That's a great question. And I think it's acknowledging that everything evolves but within that evolution, you as a leader, and that's leadership at all levels, especially down to student and family leadership, you have to really push the envelope and your vision for what that evolution looks like. Mm-hmm. So part of the, the challenge with anything that's buzzy in education is everyone's looking for a playbook and a script, and that will serve you to an extent. So as we were just talking about with restorative practice, like there's a continuum that takes us up to an a certain point of learning. And when you've reached the furthest end of the continuum, you have to continue to ask yourself, what is our growth edge? How do we continue to learn? How do we continue to set goals? How do we deepen what's already been done here? And I think in my work with schools, and as we look at a successful example like Meadows, it's getting to a place where those conversations, that that thought leadership, that visioning trickles down very powerfully to students. And, and students have to really begin to carry and narrate, well, well what do we want to see and what do we want to be true for our school culture and climate, for how we learn here, for how we serve the broader community? Because when that happens, then your capacity to, to do more within your school community grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. But what we find too often is 
because we're comfortable in, in a posture of control that remains at the highest level of leadership and it never you know, meaningfully trickles down to teachers, to students, and then more importantly, to family and community. So I think the, most th the thing that I'm most excited about is that's already started to happen at Meadows where it's taking hold with students and families in powerful ways. And I'd say the more inclusive they can be in that process, the better. And then I think, you know, additionally, it's about making it even more integrated than it is right now, because we know that our teachers are already in a place where they're burnt out. Mm -hmm. They're experiencing the highest levels of sort of nationally wanting to abandon the profession. And I think my encouragement for Principal Moore and other leaders um, that are listening is just to constantly be a listening ear to your teachers, allow them to increase their leadership load in a way that's sustainable, allow them to sort of co-create the agenda and the, the learning arc for Meadows, um, and then to bring students and families along in that process. Because ultimately, when we shift the levels of accountability and empowerment to more people, it lightens the loads for those who carry it most most strongly every day, and that's our teachers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the idea of empowering all the stakeholders is so important for continued success like that. I, you know, I think this is my second podcast um, on projects that Power My Learning has done. This is going to be kind of a loaded question for you, but you know, as an organization. What does it look like if I'm a school district that um, is looking for assistance with a problem? What does it look like to, you know, sort of reach out to you and, and start talking about how we might form a relationship together? That's a great question. And this year, actually, we've, we've pursued leadership development first at the school level, but also at the district level. So we now have a convening of district leaders across the country um, that's sponsored by the Lego Foundation, actually, as an acknowledgement mm -hmm. that in order for things to, to develop and, you know, the conditions to be created at the school level, we need to work those mindsets and we need to support district level strategy to bring that down to school level action. Um, and what we've seen in real time is a willingness from district leaders to do work like social emotional learning, to integrate that into their acceleration plans but not really having a blueprint and or a good coach side by side with them mm -hmm. to get from my vision down to actualizing it. So we've, we brand ourselves really as capacity builders because while it's generic in its framing, to your point, we, we want to help people to understand that we will build capacity alongside of you as education rapidly evolves. So as things come out around learning acceleration, social emotional learning, culturally responsive education, we realize that there's a need to build capacity at the district level, at the school leadership level, at the teacher level, and we will help you to figure out what that capacity building looks like. Um, so we welcome people to reach out to us to start the conversation um, around developing growth tracks, developing coaching plans, mm -hmm. um, building leadership capacity to do this work. Um, and, and it can take different forms, and we're wide open to what that can look like. Well, it's it's been uh, incredibly exciting to learn about Meadows Elementary and Principal Moore and this project, because I think that, you know, all of us are yearning for, you know, examples of positive stories, and this is certainly one of them, but you learn a lot from reading about those stories, and I, I'm really thankful for you spending time with us to narrate it today. 
No, thank you for having me, Scott. And, you know, if I can just give one last word and encouragement, you know, in order for Principal Moore and, and um, Meadows to do this work, we also need leaders who are going to think differently about what matters in schools. Mm. And so that's at the state level, at the policy level, really thinking about how do we create accountable measures that honor work like social emotional learning. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that we all need to be advocating for because it's uh, so important. And I, and I think more people need to hear that message. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your time today, Scott. Absolutely. My guest was Dr. Judon Shields. He's the Chief Program and Strategy Officer at Power My Learning. We've been learning about Meadows Elementary School and their integration of socio-emotional learning, not just another thing, but integrated into everything that they do. I'll put a link to Power My Learning so that listeners of the podcast can um, explore this further. Uh, and I just want to thank everyone for spending your time listening to our program today. Our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titchworth, your host. Hope you have a great day and thanks for listening.